0: If you have a Bible, would you open it to uh, Psalm 103, Psalm 103, and you'll probably get really close if you just open right in the middle. Uh, You could have that wonderful experience of opening directly to the passage. That's always a fun experience for me. I remember as a kid sometimes, I'd open my Bible and it would land right where it was supposed to, and I thought... I thought that meant something significant. It probably didn't, but it was fun. Uh, Psalm 103 is our text for today, giving you time to turn there because we're going to start right off by by reading this whole psalm. We have already read some of it, um, and we've read some of it together. I read some of it to start the service, but uh, we're really meditating on this psalm today, and so I want to read the whole thing uh, one more time. So if you have it, your Bible's open to Psalm 103. Let's look at these verses in God's Word. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The testimony of God's word is that the purpose of all creation is to worship God. As a clock is created to tell time, or a novel is written to be read and enjoyed, we, alongside everything around us, have been made to let all that we think say and do bring honor and glory and praise to the one true and living God. Our purpose is to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and our neighbor as ourselves so that everyone might see the goodness and the greatness of God and be led to worship him. And the wonderful reality joined to this purpose of worship is that when we live to glorify God, we come to know the joy and the satisfaction that we have been created to experience. It's the rejection of God and the rejection of of his ways that brings sadness and pain into our lives, while worship of him with all that we are brings goodness and brings life. God then is not seeking his glory to the exclusion of our joy, but he is seeking glory from us so that he might lead us into our greatest joy. If we want to know true happiness and true satisfaction, then we must strain every nerve that we have to glorify God. And as we praise him in the way that we have been created to, we will come to know the joy that we have been created for. Worship, then, should not be some sort of secondary concern in our lives, but rather worship should be the central concern of our entire being. Because to praise and honor God is what we are made to do. And all the longings of our souls will only be satisfied if every part of us is focused on worshiping the Lord. Now, I want to give you this big picture reminder of the purpose for which God created us and the joy that we are seeking is found in worshiping Him. Because I'm going to tell you what our big idea for Psalm 103 is. And it's this Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. And if I tell you that that's the title or that's the, the theme, it's actually both, isn't it? It's both the title and the theme, the big idea. It's the whole, uh, it's every part of it. If I tell you that, you're going to be tempted to mentally check out because that command seems simplistic. It seems elementary. Or you might think that I'm just talking about musical worship or a, a prayer that you, that you offer to God or maybe a service like this one. That's what we're talking about when we say, bless the Lord. But but knowing that we are created for worship, we see that the call to bless the Lord is a command that does not find expression only in songs and prayers and services, but it finds expression in all that we are and all that we do. And furthermore, we see that the more that our moments and days flow in ceaseless praise, the the more our moments and days will be filled with the all-satisfying joy that God has offered to us in Christ. The more that we honor and glorify God in thought, word, and deed, the happier we will be. Therefore, brothers and sisters, it's not a simplistic thing for me to say to you today and for God's word to say to us today, bless the Lord. That, in fact, is a fathomless and life-giving call to us this afternoon. So before we really dig into the psalm, I want to ask a few questions, though. And the first is, what does it mean to bless the Lord? I'm telling you the big idea is to bless the Lord. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to bless the Lord? We think of this word blessing as having primarily to do with God giving us good things. We are are blessed with health, or we're blessed with finances, or we're blessed with friends and family, or countless other good things. And that is, in fact, what is meant when we're told that God blesses us, that he gives us unmerited favor for our good and for our joy. So when we say we're going to bless the Lord, are we going to give God something? We're gonna offer something to him. Well, God lacks nothing and all that we have is from him in the first place. The Lord says in Job forty one eleven, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. What do you give to the person who owns everything? We, we cannot give God anything, anything other than praise and glory, the praise and glory he deserves. To bless the Lord then is to acknowledge this reality that we can offer him nothing as well as that the fact that all the good that we have has been given to us by him. To bless the Lord is to worship and glorify God by declaring that he alone is God and every good in us and every good in the world is in fact from him. Augustine says of Psalm 103.1, What reward will you give to the Lord for his having created you above all the cattle and above all the fowls of the air in his image and likeness? Seek not how to reward him. Give back unto him his own image. He requires no more. He demands his own coin. Now, my hope that understanding a little better what it means to bless the Lord, we, we can now ask a second question, which is, uh, in this particular Psalm of David, who is David calling to bless the Lord? Who is he calling and demanding that, to bless the Lord? From verse 1 of Psalm 103, the answer, the most obvious answer, is his own soul. He's speaking to his own soul. In fact, this psalm begins and ends with the same soul-focused command, Bless the Lord, O my soul. That unique phrase helps us see that the psalm is in fact not a, a prayer of praise, actually, in the sense that it never addresses God directly. David speaks of who God is, of what God has done, of what God is doing, but he never says, You, O Lord, are great. Rather, this is a call to worship. It's a call to worship that in fact is answered by its companion Psalm, Psalm 104, which begins with that same phrase, bless the Lord, O my soul, but then reads, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty and so on. But here in Psalm 103, David is focused on imploring his own soul to worship the Lord as he tells himself what is true and what is right about God and reminds his his own heart of all that God is doing and of all the goodness that flows from him. And not only is he telling his soul to bless and worship the Lord, but also verse 1, all that is within him is to worship God. His heart, his soul, his mind, his strength, his thoughts, his words, his deeds, his entire being is to bless and praise the Lord. Worship is not something done on a half hour on Sundays with only our voices, but we offer our entire selves and all of our time as living sacrifices to praise God. Every part of us in our lives is to reflect God's glory. This is what David is calling his soul to do consider this practice of speaking to our souls that David is modeling for us. It's also found in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, where the psalmist writes to his discouraged self, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, my salvation and my God. In his book, Spiritual Depression, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones helps us to see how practical this talking to our own souls is. This is what the good doctor says. The main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? take those thoughts that come to you in the moment, the moment uh, you wake, in the mo- uh, wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this, allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul, he asks. His soul had been repressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. (laughs) I'll stop there, though there was a lot more I wanted to read to you. (laughs) This, This practice of talking to ourselves, it's actually not just in the Psalms. We might think about David's preaching to his soul as a means of renewing his mind, which is what Paul tells us to do in Romans 12. After telling us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices of worship, he says that we should not be conformed to this world by listening to what the world says, but that we should be transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds through telling ourselves what is true. He speaks of this in Ephesians 4 as well, that we put off the old self, which not only includes our old ways, but also our wrong thoughts and our old thoughts. And having done so, we are to be renewed in the spirit of what? Of our minds. Through understanding who God is and what he has done and what he is doing. And then we put on this, this new self and walk in faith and faithfulness. We worship God having our minds renewed about what is true. Brothers and sisters, if, if all we do is listen to ourselves, we're sunk. It's over. We have to talk to our souls. We have to tell our souls what is true. So who is David talking to? Well, primarily he's talking to his, his own soul. He's telling his own soul to bless the Lord. But who else is he telling to bless the Lord? He's telling all of God's people to bless the Lord. All God's people are to bless the Lord. Consider the pronouns that he uses later. Here he's talking to his His own soul, but then in verse 10 he says that, that God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. In verse 12, he removes our transgressions from us. In verse 14, he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. Our souls then, we could say, are unique in their struggles, but they're also not unique at all in their struggles. And we all need to hear the same truths about God. So we must speak to our souls what is true about who God is and what he has done and what he is doing. But we also must speak truth to one another, calling each other away from sin and idolatry and into worship. Because sometimes we're, we're so low, I can't even speak to myself. I need you to speak to me and tell me what is true. Let's complete this loop, as it were, on the question of who David is talking to and who he's saying should bless the Lord. He's calling his own soul to bless the Lord, as well, of all, as well as all of God's people, including us. And because of the inspiration of the Scriptures, he's also, in fact, giving us the words that we should give to our own soul and that we should give to one another. The psalm is part of God's inspired word. It is pure truth. These are not platitudes. These are not bumper sticker sayings. They're not words that you find on farmhouse chic signs in Hobby Lobby. These are unchanging eternal truths about the God of the universe and how he relates to we who are his children. These are Holy Spirit-inspired facts about the God who has sent his son to save our eternal souls. And so they are the best words to use when we are looking to talk to ourselves when we are calling ourselves and one another to worship the Lord. These are the kinds of words that will change us. So Psalm 103, therefore, calls us to worship and it teaches us how to call our own souls and one another into worship. There's, in fact, only two commands in this psalm. The first one we've been looking at, bless the Lord, but there's another one in verse two. Forget not all his benefits. In one way, these, these commands are, are parallel. To bless the Lord is, in fact, to not forget all of his, his benefits. In another, word, in, in another way, making sure we do not forget God's blessings is the means by which we bless the Lord. Remembering what God has done and is doing is one of the primary ways that we bless him. We recall what he has done for us. Doesn't it seem like remembering God's blessings would be easy? And yet, we're a lot better at remembering our own failures and our own difficulties than we are at remembering God's blessings. We're much quicker to remember our own questions and our uncertainties than we are to remember the unchanging truth about who God is. And therefore, we have to invest all the more effort to remember God's goodness and to remember God's blessings. We have to talk to ourselves or we will end up listening to ourselves and we will convince ourselves of lies and half-truths about who God is and who he has made us to be. If we think of verses 1 and 2 as an introduction, then beginning in verse 3, the psalm becomes a list of how we bless the Lord, a list of all the benefits that God gives to his people. And so let's do our best to walk through as many of these benefits as time allows so that we can be led to bless the Lord with our whole lives. I've outlined them a little bit, though my points may prove to be redundant. And in fact, it's, it's just a long list of benefits, but I'll put them into three sections. And the first section of benefits is in verses 3 through 5. And we'll say they have to do with the present actions of God. The present actions of God. David describes just what the Lord is doing for him and what he does for all his children. If, if you were to simply list them, forget not all his benefits, and we wanted a list of God's benefits, then we might say, well, here's the benefits. Forgiveness, healing, redemption, goodness, satisfaction, and renewal. And I think that would be fine. But what's interesting here is that David is not so much listing benefits but he's describing the God who gives us these benefits. In verses three through five, five of those six lines of of this psalm begin with what word? They begin with the word who. God does give us benefits, and David does list the works of God and the gifts that he gives us, but they're all tied to the person of God because the greatest gift that God could give us is himself. He offers us his unchanging and his perfect character. And so David shows us that our focus should be less on the benefits and more on the benefactor, less on the rewards and more on the rewarder. Every true gift is ultimately not about the gift itself, but about the relationship that it flows from. A a gift is nice, some of us will receive or, or give gifts tomorrow, and that gift is nice, but the, the love and the relationship that that gift communicates is what is priceless. In fact, that could be why we, we hold on to things, gifts that are given to us that we may not even like that much, but we keep them. Why? Because that gift represents something. It represents the, the love of the one that gave it to us. It represents that they cared enough for us. And so too, God's gifts are meant to lead us ultimately to him. Let's walk through verses three through five. First, we see that we're we're given forgiveness and that forgiveness finds its source in a God who is marked by being forgiving. He is a God for whom forgiveness is so much a part of who he is that he can't help but forgive all of our iniquities, every single one of them. He doesn't forgive some and then hold some against us to bring up later when we fail. No, he forgives every single one of our iniquities. And stated here, it's in the present tense, who forgives, present tense, all your iniquities. So we're reminded that forgiveness is constant because we're constantly failing and falling. You might think of forgiveness on a continuous scroll. You have that on your phone where you just keep going and the results keep showing up. You don't have to click next. That's what God's forgiveness is like. It, it just continues automatically. And if you wanted to try to get to the end of the page, you can't. His forgiveness just keeps coming. Now think about applying this idea of God's forgiveness uh, to this idea of speaking to ourselves. If we find ourselves stuck in a pattern of failure, or if we find that we've just committed some terrible sin, or if we're just struggling to believe anything at all, isn't it good to tell our souls that our God is the God who forgives all our iniquity, that our sins are not too many, that they're not too evil, that they're not even too elemental and small for him to forgive, but he is the God who forgives all my iniquities. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord who forgives every single one of my sins. Our God is also the one, still in verse 3, who heals all our diseases. I think specifically in this verse must be in view the diseases of our hearts and of our souls, though we know that every disease is the result of sin ultimately. So as God deals with sin through forgiveness, he also deals with sin's effects. He brings healing to all the wounds and the scars that are caused by our own sins and the sins of others against us. He heals all the damage and the trauma of our past. He heals all the broken places in us, all the besetting sins that seek to kill us. Think about the life of Jesus. Jesus never met a disease that he could not heal. He never met a demon that he could not cast out. And so too, there's not one sickness of your soul or mine that is beyond his healing power. The great physician never looks at our spiritual diseases and says, that's inoperable. That's incurable. We can say to our souls that our God is one who can heal every single one of our diseases. He's the God who redeems our life from the pit. We were slaves to sin. We were condemned to eternal death as hopeless as Joseph was in the hands of his jealous brothers. But the Lord redeems us. He draws us up out of the dark abyss of sin and not to make us slaves to live in in fear before him, but still in verse four, so that he can crown us with steadfast love and mercy. He redeems us so that he can adopt us. He redeems us so that he can crown us as heirs, chosen daughters and sons of God. And then, verse 5, he satisfies us with good. All throughout our life we seek benefits and blessings, but our hunger and thirst are never fully quenched. Talking about this verse, Spurgeon speaks of the difference between being satiated and being satisfied. You ever think about that? Maybe on a hot day you get a small glass of water to drink, and it satiates your thirst, but it doesn't satisfy it. When it comes to our souls, only the Lord can satisfy us. Only those trusting in our God are given the good that makes them know that there is no need to turn anywhere else because God has the words of eternal life. Where else could we go? He doesn't just satiate us. He satisfies our very souls. And with the satisfaction also comes renewal, a renewal of our brokenness and the restoration of the years that the locusts of sin have stolen so that we mount up with wings like eagles. Spurgeon, of all the benefits listed here in verses three, 3 through 5, sums it up by saying this. Thus is the endless chain of grace complete. Sin is forgiven, its power subdued, and its penalty averted. Then we are honored, supplied, and our very nature renovated, and its penalty averted, till we are as newborn children in the household of God. And let's be clear that this is all ours Through Christ. It's all ours through Jesus who has shown the greatness of who God is to us. Apart from Jesus, we're not under the blessings of God. Apart from Jesus, we're under his curse because of our sin. But through faith in Christ, God is for us. It is Jesus whose sinless life and sacrificial death brings us forgiveness. It is by his stripes that we are healed. It's through the payment by, of, his, of his blood that we are redeemed. It is the resurre- his resurrection that crowns us as children and royal heirs. It is his ascension that opens up the satisfying showers of heavenly blessings. It is his spirit that renews us day by day. So we say, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the name of Jesus, our Savior. Let's move from present action. Next to verses 6 through 14 and see the enduring goodness of God. The enduring goodness of God. In verses 6 through 14, David looks to the past. He looks to the exodus and who God was then, knowing that that God does not change. So who he was then is who he will always be. God's past faithfulness to his covenant people gives us present and future confidence in his steadfast and unchanging love to us. Verse six to me initially seems a little bit out of place. It seems unconnected, but it could be that it in fact sets the stage for everything that follows. It says, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. And then it describes just how he did that for his children in the Exodus so that he can do the same for all others who are oppressed. Now specifically in view in these verses would seem to be the exodus, um, the deliverance from Egypt, uh, the passing through the Red Sea, the giving of the law. In verse 7, God's ways are made known to Moses. This would at least in part be the commands given to Moses, the laws, the ways that we are to worship and honor God. And then his acts would be the deliverance that he has accomplished. But given the the history that David is drawing on here, he also has to have in view God's steadfast love in the face of sin. God's steadfast love in the face of of our sin. Jordan did such a great job of explaining the context of of Exodus 33 and 34 that he read for us. But again, that context is, is of the rebellion of the children of Israel in making this golden calf. So, how does God respond to such sin? That's an important question for Israel, but it's also a great question for all of us who fall and fail and rebel against God. What is is God's heart towards us when we do forget all of His benefits, when we forget Him completely? What's God's heart towards us when we go astray and wander? We know that he expressed his anger towards his people in Exodus 32, but we also see how through the gift of an intercessor, God turned to them in steadfast love. David repeats the words that God said of himself in Exodus 34. Who is the Lord? When God wants to reveal himself to Moses, what are the words he's going to use to describe himself? Doesn't that, think about if someone asks you who you are, who do you say who you are? You are, this is who I really think I am. What does God say about who he is? He says that he is the Lord. He is a God who keeps his covenant and never breaks a promise. And he is merciful, not giving us what we deserve. He is gracious, blessing us with unmerited favor. He is slow anger. He doesn't erupt in rash, all-consuming wrath, and his mercy overflows like an eternal fountain. And because of all of that, we're told that there are things that he does not do. Do you ever praise God for what he has not done? That He does not hold his anger forever, that he doesn't constantly correct and discipline us, That he doesn't deal with us as children with only our our sin in view. That he doesn't base his blessings to us on whether or not we've been perfect. All of that is because of his mercy and his grace and his steadfast love, which David then tries to illustrate in three different ways in verses 11 through 13. First, he says that his mercy is higher than the heavens are above the earth toward those that fear him. Now, we should deal with that last phrase briefly and say that his mercy is not towards all people. It is towards those who fear him. It is towards those who are in a covenant relationship with him, who honor and are in awe of him, who, as we see in verse 13, are his children. This is a a relationship initiated and sustained by the Lord alone. It's, It's ours through faith in Jesus. And because of Jesus, God's mercy, therefore, extends to the skies. How high are the heavens above the earth. Do you ever think about that? Well, it's gotta be, I mean, it's gotta be at least above the clouds, right? And then I think from there, it's gotta go past the earth's atmosphere, right? And then I would think it goes into outer space. And then, I mean, we're just going into the ever-expanding universe. So therefore, there's no end to God's mercy. God's mercy will never run out. Similarly, there's a second illustration that we find. Because of God's mercy, our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. Or maybe it's east and west. I never know exactly where I'm standing. My wife could tell me where east and west is right now. But just think about that. Start thinking about how far the east is from the west. They're infinitely separated, aren't they? And so the sins that you and I carry close to our chests, the past failures that we have that we keep reminding ourselves of, the ways that we've failed others, the ways that we've failed our Savior, if we have sought forgiveness for them through the work of Christ, they are in fact infinitely and eternally removed from us. That's how far away they are from us. Christian, God's mercy is infinitely high, and therefore he has removed your sin infinitely far away from you. You couldn't find it if you wanted to. And why? Why? Because verse 13, the third illustration, because he is a perfect father who pities his children. He is a perfect father who pities his children. He is not a father who scolds an infant for being weak, or yells at a toddler for making a mistake, or scolds a child for crying when he falls or a teenager for being overwhelmed by life. He's not a father who harms his children with harshness. He's not a father who ever removes himself from his kids in some sense of coldness. He's filled with pity towards us. When you and I have no pity or compassion or forgiveness for ourselves, know this, that God in Christ is a father who has limitless pity and limitless compassion for you. What makes him that kind of father? We're told in verse 14, it's because he remembers what we forget. Because he was there when we were formed. It's as if he can still feel the clay in his hands. He remembers that we are dust. He remembers what he said to Adam. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. What can dust do? What can dust do other than be blown around by the wind of life? What strength or ability does dust have? God knows who we are. He knows that we are dust. Therefore, he is filled with pity towards us, a pity that overflows in mercy and grace, in patience and love, and all of them in limitless quantities. There are no empty shelves or supply chain shortages in the warehouse of God's love. It is infinite. It is everlasting. You know, it's easy to get stuck, to speak to ourselves, and to just get, Reminding ourselves of all of our golden calf moments. The times that we forsook, that we went away from God and strayed from him. And we wonder how God's going to respond to us. But this psalm tells us that he responds with limitless mercy. So says Martin Luther, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on, me, on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Speaking to yourself can sometimes have a little edge to it. That's okay. We have to talk to our souls. We have to remind ourselves when sin fills our vision. Because when sin fills our vision, we're on a downward spiral towards despair and we're going to get lost down there. So we have to lift up our eyes and remind our souls and remind one another of the enduring limitless goodness of God displayed in the exodus of Israel. Yes, but even more so fully in the salvation purchased for us by Jesus. This reminder that, that we are dust carries us into the next section in verses 15 through 19. If verses 1 through 5 show us God's, God's present benefits and if verses 6 through 14 show us how his, his past goodness endures, then verses 15 through 19 point to the future and they tell of the eternal faithfulness of God, the eternal faithfulness of God. It is, it is true to say that we have an eternal soul that will never die. And yet, it is also true to say that we are mortal and one day we will be no more. In verse fi- verses 15 and 16, David compares us to a flower. Imagine, just picture this in your, your mind. He compares us to a flower in a vast field that blooms and blossoms for a little bit of time. And then one day it's uprooted and it's blown away. And if you wanted to find out where that flower once was, it would be impossible. That's who we are. We are called by the the world around us to make our mark, to make a name for ourselves, but ultimately we are fading. And it's only God's name that will endure, and it's only what's done for his kingdom that will ultimately last. And so in the face of our quickly fading lives, we see the mercy of the Lord that has always been and will always be a mercy that, that is extended, we are told, to those who fear the Lord, to those who keep his covenant and who remember to do his commandments. That's who God shows everlasting mercy to, to those who fear the Lord, who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. That's none of us. None of, none of we who are dust-formed and fading like flowers are able to do any of that. And so we turn to Jesus, who lived in perfect fear of the Lord, who kept and even fulfilled the promises of the covenant, who never broke any one of God's commands. And it's through faith in the goodness of Jesus that we can know the mercy of God and be given his righteousness. And because of his eternal faithfulness and the gift of the Spirit, we are then motivated and empowered to fear him, to stay true to his covenant and to keep his commandments. If you read this psalm and we see all this love and mercy and grace in response to that love and mercy and grace from our Father and our friend, how could we not lay down our lives? We see our fading lives and we see his eternal devotion to us and his eternal kingdom. Therefore, we want to join with all creation in witness to his great eternal faithfulness. We, we join the universe in, in making a name for our God. We behold his eternal kingdom, verse 19, and see him sitting rightfully on the throne of the world. And we say, I will live for his glory because of all that he has done for me. And that leads uh, into us calling not just our own souls, but calling heaven and earth to join our souls in the worship of our God. And though, so as we quickly rush to the end, this call to worship begins with our souls, but it extends to the solar system in a cosmic call to worship. I think that's what I'd like to call verses 20 through 22, a cosmic call to worship. David says, let the angels who do God's every bidding also worship him with their whole being. And let the heavenly host, the unseen powers that fill earth and heaven. Let all these beings who work for our God's pleasure be pleased to praise him. Let all the works of his hands in all places where he reigns worship him. Let every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And therefore, if they're all gonna do it, (laughs) then let my soul also bless the Lord. Let each one who is under the Lord's dominion, who is a work of his hands, bless the name of the Lord because he alone is worthy of our praise. And in worshiping him, him, true joy is found. All of our running from him, all of our suppressing of his truth, all of our living for our own glory and our own name, all of our hiding from him brings nothing but pain and nothing but judgment. But if we would praise him, and we would bless him as we have been created to, then we would know the joy that we have been created for. So bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord, all you his people. Bless the Lord, all creation. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let's praise him together. Lord, could our words... Never cease, we would not come up with enough words and phrases and terms to, to bless you and to praise you. But we thank you for these words that reveal to us how great you are, that reveal to us that you are a God who forgives, who heals, who redeems, who crowns us with love and mercy, who satisfies us and who renews us, that you are a God who shows righteousness to those who are oppressed, Lord, that in our weakness, you don't kick us while we're down. Rather, Lord, you come to us in mercy that abounds and never fails, a mercy that is higher than the heavens are above the earth so that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. Thank you, Father, that you are a Father who pities us, who remembers how weak we are. And in our weakness, Lord, you are shown to be strong. You show that your steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. And so, Lord, would, we, would, you, would you help us to, to live for your kingdom, to live for your glory, to praise you not just with our mouths on a Sunday, but to praise you with every part of who we are, knowing, Lord, that when we, when we follow in your ways and when we walk in your ways and we live lives for your glory, that only then we will be fully satisfied. Bless you, Lord. You alone deserve honor and glory. Would you help us, Father, to not forget all of your benefits? I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.